This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And I am Bill Newman. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And this is a special edition of Black in the Valley with our segment host, the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks and Professor Carly Tartikoff. They have with us today a very special guest, Robin Ruth Simmons, who is the founder and executive director of First Repair. That's the resource organization for reparations, reparation efforts nationally. She is the chair of the Evanston Reparations Committee, Evanston, Illinois. She was the alderwoman for Ward 5, who was a mover and shaker for the passage of the reparations legislation in Evanston. Evanston, Illinois, as most of our listeners know, is the first, was the first municipality in the United States to pass reparations legislation. And I think it is going to serve significantly as a model, both the process and the result, for what is occurring in the city of Northampton and the town of Amherst today. Robin Ruth Simmons is a lifelong member of NCOBRA, the National Coalition of Blacks for Reparations in America. So, Robin Ruth Simmons, thank you so much for being with us. It's an honor and a pleasure to have you. Uh, let me turn the microphone over at this point to the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Crooks. Jacqueline. Thank you, Bill. And and again, welcome, 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 uh, Robin. Robin, um, this is the, we're in the midst of celebrating Black History Month, which has been called, um, what is it, CRT and critical race theory, uh, but it's cultural theory. And you went back to do something, um, to fetch something so that we could move forward. And what was it that prompted you to go, to take that walk back and begin this journey towards reparations? Uh, well, thank you for the question. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. I have friends in the area, so I hope they're listening in. Um, I'll tell you, as a Black woman, having uh, been born and raised, had my life experiences raising my children in a Black community, uh, it, was, it was my responsibility as an elected leader to respond in um, the highest form of justice possible to my friends and neighbors. And we were simply having um, uh, not the same quality of life, not the same access, the same livability as our white friends and neighbors in town. And that was because of historical, excuse me, historical and ongoing injustices that were anti-Black, are anti-Black, and um, reparations is needed to repair the past harm. So we had done plenty of equity work that had proven to be insufficient for our racial gaps and the oppressed state in the black community and reparations needed to move forward, not just for the crimes of the transatlantic slave trade, but its legacies and vestiges that still live within our policy today. Why reparations? Why that work? Well, that practice, uh, that policy, because it is to repair a past harm in a tangible way. And that's what reparations is, is making of amends of a egregious act to a group of people. And in this case, we're talking about black folks. Um, and that's why reparations, civil rights has not been enough. Equity has not been enough. Um, other forms of good public smart policy, public policy have been insufficient with our racial gaps and reparations is, is the most radical appropriate form of justice for black communities. 
I hear what you're saying. And at the same time, there are people who have some issues around that. Uh, and they're saying that they were not there. Um, uh, and, and, and so that can uh, serve as an impediment to movement. How have you been able to navigate that? Well, in the case of local reparations, we're looking at local harms that were um, delivered by municipal governments, and they were there. We were all there. Uh, we're not talking too far in history. We're talking about anti-Blackness that's baked into current policies, zoning laws, housing policies, uh, uh, exclusionary housing policies. And so in that case, um, that's that's a different discussion. But when you talk about the transatlantic slave trade, I have heard that argument that uh, they were not there. But you have enjoyed the privileges. The privileges have been passed down as we inherit trauma as black community and oppression and inequalities. Uh, ally communities inherit and enjoy the privileges of 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 white supremacy and anti blackness and therefore uh, we need to look at our policy. We need to look at our law, our culture. We need to change our hearts and minds, and we need to repair damages in our community, especially communities, diverse communities, progressive communities like Evanston, Illinois, Amherst, and others um, that want to be diverse and inclusive need to look at the history, need to be more concerned about how do we get to a, in some cases, $200,000 uh, household income divide. I understand in Boston, that's the number. In our city, it was $50,000 when we led the passing in 2019. Um, so th the work is complex, but it is justice. And I'm so proud of cities like Evanston and Amherst and Boston and many other cities. I understand Northampton has taken steps that are taking these steps. Could you and take us through the process? Northampton taking the steps. I'd like to defer to Bill because he had some specific questions uh, that might have direct implications now uh, in terms of where Northampton is going. Well, Robin Bruce Simmons, I really have a question for you, which is this: Can you take us through the process? I know that this got to be a long, it could be a long answer, but give us a thumbnail sketch of what was the process in Evanston? Because this process is just beginning, really, in Northampton and Amherst. What was the process? What worked? What and what would you suggest that we avoid? Well, the process, the the outcomes and the remedies are to be prescribed by Black community, and so the recommendations are to be specific to that community of Black people, not from um, any other community but the black folks in that locality. But the process has to start with a, um, a, a black community convening. In some cases, there might be a very strong organized NAACP or Council of Black Churches or something along those lines. In our cases, we had uh, community meetings on reparations where black residents came in and began to inform the process. Um, there has to be a case for reparations, so not all the harms to black people, but specifically what municipal law in, in that locality um, was anti-black. So there has to be a case, a report, a harm report, some cities are calling it. Um, and then there needs to be a legal framework. In our case in Evanston, we have a narrowly tailored legal framework 
our remedy is in direct correlation to the harm so that it's legislatively viable. Um, and there needs to be a funding mechanism. So how do you fund this? In our case, we're using home rule taxes, specifically um, recreational cannabis sales tax. And now we've added an additional commitment from graduated real estate transfer tax. Um, and then there needs to be a ton of public education ongoing because there is a, 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 a complex history. We need to understand how reparations is different than ordinary public policy. We need to understand the precedent for reparations and what is reparations. It's not just a cash check. It's not only restitution or compensation, but by interna international law standards, there are five components of, of reparations. Full repair includes cessation or guarantee of non-repetition. We're looking at policy reform to start. Restitution and compensation are most discussed, cash checks, grants, but there's also satisfaction, restoring the dignity of a people, looking at uh, education, truth there, monuments, black history museums, apologies, uh, holidays like Juneteenth being a federal holiday as a form of reparations. And then there's rehabilitation. What are we doing to um, restore the wellness, heal black folks from the trauma that we live every day, the trauma that we've inherited as black folks in America. And, and so those are um, some of the practices of reparations and some of the steps that we took in Evanston. Did you look specifically at some of the history of Evanston to determine what form reparations should take in that city? That's all we looked at. So we didn't look at anything else. We did what was in our purview. So we're looking for the United States government to address the transatlantic slave trade, other federal laws like redlining. Redlining is a federal policy. So we looked at what happened in Evanston to develop our remedy, our eligibility, and, and the, our whole process. And when you looked at what happened in Evanston, did that determine or set the course for the discussion about what should the remedy be? Absolutely, yes. Can you tell us more about that? What's the sure. history of Evans? I'd like to, here's what I really love to get to. Evanston, I'd like you to describe for us what the reparations program is. It's a housing program. I'd like to know how and why it's different from other kinds of housing programs. What makes this reparations different? So it's not a housing program. So let me give you that first correction. It okay. is a reparations program that has some priorities, one of which is building wealth through home equity uh, and how and housing, home ownership. So let's start with that correction. Okay, thank um, you. And how we, mm -hmm, how we landed there was through community engagement, our black community gave us their priorities for uh, reparations. Housing was at the top of that list. And so we responded to the um, demands of the majority of our black community. So you asked about Evanston. Evanston is a beautiful, aesthetically beautiful lakefront community, a city of mature trees. It's a college town, 75,000 people, predominantly white and affluent, a, a rich historically black community that segregated and also um, segregated from the same livability as the rest of Evanston. Uh, the, the, the reparations is responding to uh, housing and zoning laws that restricted black Evanstonians to living into one part of the community, the west end of the fifth ward. That's where I live. I was born and raised there. And that neighborhood 
was black by design, but it also was stripped away of a neighborhood school, um, access to health care, access to healthy foods, uh, air quality issues, um, housing stock deteriorating, and so on. And therefore, that has harmed the black community, stripped away wealth and opportunity. And that is the basis of our first priority for reparations. Do you see the program going on beyond now the rep rep reparations? I don't mean to call it a program, but do you see the reparations? This being a first step. Uh, how, how do you see this uh, uh, involvement with building wealth and equity and housing in terms of a big picture of reparations in Evanston? Well, it's a long journey ahead. We're talking about, you know, 400 over 400 years and and, and a long time in Evanston. So it's a first step. It's the first tangible step. We have set aside a budget, restricted a fund for repair, began to disperse. So it's already building wealth. It's already improving the life circumstances of Black Evanston in other ways that we probably don't have time to discuss on this show. Um, but I see it continuing. So we have an initial commitment of 10 years to get our, our program sorted out. Um, but my hope is that future councils will extend it into perpetuity. It'll take that long to repair the harm um, at a local level and at a, at a federal level. One thing that I must state is we know that the cities don't have the capacity to really address the harm in black communities in this nation. And so in 2002, our city passed a reparations resolution supporting HR 40. We still stand on that today. Uh, we are standing in solidarity with many other cities like Amherst, Massachusetts and our friends there, Michelle and Dr. Uh, Shabazz and Kathleen Anderson of Cobra to synchronize our efforts so that we can get a federal commitment. President Joe Biden signing into executive order HR 40 is our ultimate goal. You, you know, there's there's um, a history of, of black people being in large numbers in some communities. But when we find most of the New England uh, communities, especially, even though uh, the sin against humanity has been as as much in some ways as as in the South, um, how do you uh, how do you speak to the the building of alliances and uh, still having black people at the center? So let me be clear on the question. You're saying um, in black communities, um, how do we build alliances? In, in places of, that are predominantly white, where there are very, there's very small representation of black people and they are too uh, spearheaded. And there are white people who really have a passion for justice and it's kind of hard to avoid stepping into the forefront, stepping to mm -hmm. the side. How, how, what, how, what, what, how, how do you see that? Well, well but, we've successfully done that in Evanston. Uh, again, we're a predominantly white city, a small black population. And allies have to first respect the practice of reparations. And that means that um, this is a Black-led movement. Uh, black informed remedies are black prescribed. And so that's going to take ally communities being educated. And so what our 
uh, non-Black community, predominantly white community did, largely through our interfaith community. So I'm talking synagogues and churches and um, Buddhist temple houses of worship. Uh, they began to educate themselves, bringing in uh, Black thought leaders. Uh, I've attended. Uh, other members of Encobra have attended, sharing information, educating them. Um, and they fully understood producing white papers on why they support reparations from a moral standpoint, but from a scriptural base, from a um, legislative base. And then they um, took the lead of the small black community on how do we support. And so they supported through public education, uh, a, a proclamation in solidarity stating that support and then later began giving. And so I'm really proud of our predominantly white community that from Juneteenth of this past year to this most recent King Day, so a several month time period, they raised a, just shy of a million dollars to contribute to a community reparations fund to be a companion to the legislative fund at the city of Evanston. And that community led fund, which is called the Reparations Stakeholder Authority of Evanston, it's in partnership with our local community foundation, which is the Evanston Community Foundation. It will always be led by black members of the community, has standing seats for example, like divine nine groups and black churches and NAACP and other historically black organizations in our town. And that's how you do that. You respect one another. You, uh, you you don't try to take over or control it, but you respect the lead of the black community, and then you work together on that. That is and, a great um, place for us to take a break. Other cities. This is Black in the Valley with Robin Rue Simmons, the leader of the uh, pioneering reparations movement in Evanston. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday local burgers and fries? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Local burgers and fries, spiked milkshakes and more. On the corner in downtown Northampton and on the main drag in Keene. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote, 586-1000. What's new at the Wheatley Inn? 
everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And this is a special edition of Black in the Valley with our co-hosts, the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith-Cooks and Professor Kari Tartikoff, our very special guest today, Robin Ruth Simmons, who was the, was the older woman in Ward 5 in Evanston, Illinois, who was one of the leaders and is acknowledged in this marvelous film about the fight in Evanston for reparations called The Big Payback. Uh, are you pleased how the film came out? I saw it uh, recently. Uh, Robin Absolutely. The sure. The film, The Big Payback, it uh, premiered at Tribeca Film Festival this summer. It just had its national broadcast on PBS. Uh, and I'm excited to share that uh, there will be a screening in Amherst hosted by the uh, African Heritage Reparations Assembly. Uh, date to be determined but i understand it's going to be march so if you could just follow the african heritage mm -hmm. reparations assembly social pages or newsletters um you'll learn more about that and i'll be in town for it i'm excited to uh visit you in amherst we can't wait now, Ms. Ruth simmons i i have a question based on frankly my legal background and i know buzz eisenberg would share this question with me this is a uh effort uh, to equalize or to make fairer, to do undo some of the in some of the injustice that has flowed from uh, slavery in the United States, specifically designed to be of assistance to members of the black community. Is there any concern about the legality of that uh, effort in Evanston? Uh, well, there's certainly concerns about legal challenges, and that's why our Corporation Council took special care to come up with a framework that works. It's narrowly tailored. It's specific to Evanston municipal uh, values and laws. It's using home rule taxes, which don't have any pass-through laws, like initially looking at CDBG dollars would have to follow federal law and, and census tracts and so on. And so we don't have any concerns about it being uh, framed in this way. We've already begun dispersing and we've had threats of legal challenges from conservative groups outside of our city, one group in Texas, another group in DC. Um, and they've intimidated us in ways with like FOIA lawsuits and that sort of thing, but we haven't had a formal lawsuit and we feel strong about our defense if we should get a formal lawsuit. You say making disbursements, disbursements of specifically how much money and specifically for what? So we are dispersing at this time $25,000 direct benefits to build wealth through home equity, and it can be used in a few ways. Residents are using it to, um, there's a lot more discussion about who's receiving it right now, but some of our recipients that are seniors have passed it down to their children so that their children can buy their first home or make improvements on a home. Uh, some of the recipients have used it to make improvements to their home, layered on with other programs. 
um, that they already qualify for. And some have simply paid down their uh, mortgage balances and um, others have, well, so th those are the uses of the initial disbursements, but they also have the option to use it towards the a down payment. And who's eligible? Residents that were directly harmed living in Evanston between 1919 and 1969, that made um, our first category of eligibility around 69, I think at the time of the program, uh, 69 and older, and then direct descendants. So I qualify through my lineage to my family in Evanston. Um, and, and that is a period of time when we had uh, the zoning laws that were restricting black families to live in a part of town that was also oppressed. We have just about two minutes left. I'd like to ask Carly Tartikoff or Jacqueline Smith-Crooks if they'd like to uh, share with us a final thought or a question for our very special guest, Robin Rue Simmons. Jacqueline or Carly? I was wondering about how, if there was something set up for evaluating what you were doing. Absolutely. So you know if you're successful or not. Yes. Uh, so uh, we just partnered with a um, institute at Northwestern University, which is in Evanston, um, to begin research. It's early to research the um, outcomes on wealth because we're just beginning to disperse, but, but they are beginning to research um, the overall impact of um, saying yes and advancing reparations and the attitude thinking of residents on reparations. But once we get a little further into disbursement, they'll continue with um, researching the, the successes or the outcomes. Is, is there any one thought that, I know you probably have a million, but any one thought you'd like to leave with the audience as this community enters into this process? Absolutely. Uh, collaboration is key to this. Um, there is no, even though it is to be Black-led, it cannot be done without white allies. Um, so I would say continue to collaborate and continue to educate yourselves on, on the, the full comprehensive approach to reparations, as we call it, full repair under international law standards. And then we have a discussion guide that I think is very valuable. If you go to our website, firstrepair.org, under documentary, you'll see links to the documentary, uh, but you'll also see a discussion guide and a toolkit, which has a whole section on how to be an ally. It has templates and other documents on how to advance legislation. It has legislative timelines. It has a timeline on the history of reparations. Uh, we worked with an um, incredible curriculum design firm to put it in a format that was palatable and educational. Uh, so please do look at those resources. And then I would say stay informed. Don't get your information from Facebook or, you know, the water cooler. Um, tune in to the assemblies meetings. I know that they're public meetings. I don't know what the format, but it's a government body. So I know they're public. I know there's meeting minutes and so on. And when you have questions, contact one of the assembly members or a council person. Um, don't take for granted information secondhand and then believe and participate. And so when we opened up our reparations applications, we still had some re residents 
understandably have given up hope on government and didn't apply. And I've heard so many folks that were regretful that they didn't apply, especially now that we're dispersing. Um, and so that's okay. We'll just have more applications when we open it up. We did have 620 in the first round. So believe, hope, participate, collaborate. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You have been a tremendous gem uh, for our discussion this morning. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Smith Crooks. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for having me. And, and thank and you. Yes, yes. Keep on coming on. We should. Miss Carly, were you saying something? Carly, well, yes, was, when, you, when you're coming. When are you coming in the film and so on? I'm waiting to hear an exact date. It'll be sometime in March, late March. Oh, probably. so it hasn't been said. I'm sure I'm going to find out. <laughs> yes. We, we are, we are going to leave it there. This has been a special edition of Black in the Valley with the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Smith Crooks, Professor Kari Tartikov, our very special guest, Robin Ruth Simmons, who is the founder and executive director of First Repair, the resource organization for reparations efforts across the United States. She, of course, was one of the most important people. She was the older woman for Ward 5 who led the fight for passage of reparations in Evanston, Illinois, that we will be using as a model in significant ways in this discussion, this effort, this fight for justice here in Amherst and Northampton. Robin Ruth Simmons, thank you so much for your time. We look forward to having you, you having <laughs> you with us again. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Miller's Falls woman has been charged following an incident on February 2nd that led to her driving her vehicle into a parked car outside of a Hadley residence with a woman and child inside. Christine DiPietro has been charged with two counts of assault with a dangerous weapon, destruction of property, and malicious damage. The Gazette reports witnesses who heard the crash told police DiPietro said she had gone to 133 East Street with the intention of running over her mother-in-law because she, quote, stole my kid. DiPietro allegedly drove her white Mercedes at high speed and crashed into the victim's Honda CRV, pushing it into the home's garage. DiPietro is scheduled for a pretrial hearing on March 17th. The South Hadley Education Association has solidified their contract agreement with South Hadley Educational Department after lengthy and sometimes contentious negotiations. Even though the contract passed, 46% of members voted against it. The four-year contract for the teachers, department heads, paraprofessionals, and education therapy assistants includes pay increases of 2% in year one, 2% in year two, 2.5% in year three, and 3% in year four. In addition, department heads will also get a reduction in their workload for a one-year trial period. A volunteer group in Amherst met last night to advocate in support of the $98 million elementary school to replace Wildwood and Fort River Elementary Schools. Vote Yes for Our Schools organized late last month and is recruiting volunteers to join them in the lead-up to the anticipated May 2nd Proposition 2.5 debt exclusion vote. The new ballot committee is planning coordinated outreach strategies to get voters in Amherst to the polls and raise awareness about the proposed school. Mostly sunny and breezy today with a high of 44 to 48, gradually increasing clouds tonight, 22 to 28. Mild tomorrow, sun cloud mix, a high of 52 to 56. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. 
Yo soy Johan Rochivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La ciudad de Holyoke estará llevando a cabo una audiencia pública sobre la ley del plan de rescate estadounidense y los fondos asignados para 2023 para informar al público y escuchar comentarios por parte de la comunidad. El alcalde de Holyoke, Joshua García, junto con representantes de Recursos de Salud en Acción y otros funcionarios de la ciudad, estarán informando sobre el estado de los proyectos financiados por ARPA y el público podrá hacer preguntas. También se darán a conocer los resultados de la encuesta comunitaria, la encuesta comercial y otros esfuerzos de divulgación comunitaria para guiar las próximas asignaciones de fondos. Se espera que en esta audiencia el público comparta ideas y pensamientos sobre lo que se necesita para la recuperación de COVID-19 en Holyoke, al igual que discutir los valores y prioridades de financiación de ARPA para Holyoke. Esta audiencia pública se llevará a cabo este lunes 13 de febrero a las 5 y 30 de la tarde en el Consejo de la Ciudad para Ancianos y Centro Comunitario para Personas Mayores, ubicado en el 291 de la calle Pine en Holyoke. Se ofrecerán servicios de interpretación al español y un espacio de actividades para niños. El Departamento del Tesoro de los Estados Unidos otorgó cerca de 30 millones de dólares a la ciudad de Holyoke en dos tramos para ayudar a cambiar el rumbo de la pandemia, atender las consecuencias económicas y proporcionar una base para una recuperación sólida y equitativa. Los fondos se pueden utilizar en cinco áreas clave. Apoyar la recuperación y los servicios de salud pública. Atender los impactos económicos negativos causados por la emergencia de salud pública. Reemplazar los ingresos perdidos del sector público. Proporcionar pago para trabajadores esenciales. Y realizar inversiones en infraestructura de agua, alcantarillado y banda ancha. Yo soy Johan Roshi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Zuski Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the new pet. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie, Mickey. And this is indeed talking baseball with the Duke. And Duke Goldman, thank you so much for being with us. I'd like to spend one minute before we turn to baseball to have your thoughts about, well, the just completed football season with the National Football League. And well, what people are talking about is an amazing Super Bowl. I think you don't share the enthusiasm, but your final thoughts on football season before we put it to rest and mark the beginning of a new baseball season. Duke? Oh, I was wildly enthusiastic because the second after football is over is the best moment of the year. It means there is the longest time possible between then and when football starts again, although ESPN basically covers football every single second, which is why it's dying as a station. Probably not, really? but I wish. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, we, we're specializing in irony here today. Okay, you're glad the NFL season is over. Uh, anything else you want to add before we get on to some baseball news? Um, no. Okay. Not on football. All right. Football's over. Hooray. Uh, okay. Um, all right. So for those of our listeners who are still with us after that comment, I would like to know what you have to say about baseball and recent elections to the Hall of Fame, which takes us both backwards and forwards in terms of baseball as a sport and as a national institution. Hall of Fame, help us out, Duke. 
Well, the first thing to say is, you know, Scott Rowland, who was elected this time, was absolutely qualified for the Hall of Fame. I look at war, wins above replacement, which is an overall combinatory, you know, assessment of a player's skills. And Scott Rowland is at 70. Anything above 50 is already in Hall of Fame consideration. 70 is well above. Rowland didn't lead the league in anything, but he won eight or nine gold gloves, had uh, five 25 homer, 100 RBI seasons, was a gamer and an excellent ball player. So it was, in my opinion, a very good pick. Next time, another great third baseman is going to get picked on the first ballot, and that's Adrian Beltre, who's had an, ama- had an amazing career, starting at the major leagues at age 19. Um, had a few good years uh, in Boston, although people will remember him best for not wanting to have his head touched, which meant so many different people did touch his head. Um, but he was a great player, 3,000 hits, great fielding third baseman, 400, well over 400, I think 468 home runs career. Um, And it probably looks like Todd Helton is also going to get in. Um, That's a little more debatable because a lot of his off-the-charts data were, were, were accomplished at Coors Field, a notorious hitter's park, but still probably belongs. So we're going to start to see a few more players getting into the Hall of Fame in the next few years, which couldn't make the Hall of Fame happier. And, oh, and one last thing. I have made a dramatic transformation in that. I now believe Pete Rose should get into the Hall of Fame. Whoa. And you know why? Please. No. Because now that baseball decides they're going to make money off gambling, I think it's really unseemly to keep somebody out of the Hall of Fame because of gambling. Wow. Well, let me ask you this. As long as you're on the topic of Pete Rose and people who have been excluded, what about those players whose names keep coming up who were part of the steroids era and and in performance-enhancing drugs? Are we through with that as a discussion point, or are those names still going to continue to come to the fore for consideration? We're not through. It's going to continue to come up. You know, I mean, we still deal with Alex Rodriguez and Manny Ramirez. And I think over time, you know, I still think someday Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens will get in. It's undeniable. Um, And, you know, steroids probably will pop up again as people learn ways to get ahead of testing. So I I don't think it's gone. I'm going to ask. Do you think they should be? I'm sorry. Go ahead, Bill. Do you think they should be in the Hall of Fame? The ones you just mentioned? the Bonds and Clemens? Yes. Fat. Yeah. I do. I think they're Hall of Fame Not players. Li- I think they were Hall of Fame players before they did steroids. And I, and I think it's ridiculous to leave two of the greatest players of all time out of the Hall because they used performance-enhancing substances. On the other hand, players who, who were caught, who were suspended, who may not have ever gotten to Hall of Fame caliber without steroids. And you know what? It, it, it passes the eye test. You look at a Mark McGuire. I don't think Mark McGuire would be a Hall of Fame player without steroids. Uh, Sammy Sosa would not be a Hall of Fame player without steroids. So that's, I think, how one has to make a determination. It's messy. It's subjective. There is no objective standard. That's really interesting. Buzz, did you want to say something? Because I want to get Duke to the question of what is really breaking news as far as for some of us, which is pitchers and catchers are reporting this week and, and the rest of the players coming soon. Um, it's always a fantastic week. Always a fantastic week. I just wanted to ask, ask Duke, do you have any qualms about Fred McGriff, the crime dog, who is also going to be inducted along with Scott Rowland? No, I don't. I think Fred McGriff was a player that everybody believed was clean. He hit almost 500 home runs. You know, his war figures are slightly above 50 career, so he's not, you know, a top-level Hall of Famer, but I think he makes the cut. Okay, my final question before we leave the Hall of Fame, is there anyone who was on the list 
who didn't get enough votes that you think should have gotten more votes? No, not really. I mean, you know, it, it looks like Helton will get in. Uh, Billy Wagner may get in next time. I'm not sure he should get in. I don't think there's anybody. I didn't think Jeff Kent belonged. He, he probably will get in eventually from a veterans committee, but I, I, I thought he was a mediocre defensive shortstop, uh, second baseman, that is. Not, not somebody who absolutely should be in. Okay, let's move from what was to what's coming this season. Spring training is here. Talk to us, Duke. It's so exciting. So uh, apparently pitchers and catchers, some of them actually reported yesterday because I just read that uh, players participating in the World Baseball Classic, which is happening for the first time in six years, is about to start in March. And so those players, pitchers and catchers, reported yesterday. The others are starting to report tomorrow and Thursday. So, you know, football ends and baseball begins. And it's going to be – this is going to be the first season since – 2019, that's sort of a normal season, except for the thing they foisted upon us, which is, which we're stuck now for good, because I just read that the decision was made by a uh, rules-playing committee with with, uh, team officials and players on it to permanently enshrine the man on second base in extra innings as a part of rules. So I believe that if anybody ever passes Ricky Henderson's career record for runs scored, they should have an asterisk next to them. Or members of Sabre, of my research society, should be on top of how many of those runs are scored that they really don't deserve, because that's going to accumulate over years, particularly somebody who plays 20-something years. You know, think about how many more extra runs Ricky Henderson would have scored if that rule had been in play all throughout his career. And the ostensible purpose for that rule is? To um, make it possible for uh, teams to, you know, throw, you know, 17 pitchers in a game and and have the game not go on endlessly so that they don't have to bring in the third base coach to pitch. Uh, Well, wait, wait just one second here. (laughs) The guy ends up on second base because he made the last out in the previous inning. It, that enables the team that comes up uh, in the extra inning, the 10th or the 11th, a much greater opportunity to score. It puts a premium on every pitch in extra innings. It creates greater tension immediately starting with the high stakes of the first pitch in an extra inning. I, mean, there's, I understand for baseball purists, this makes no sense. But in terms of making the game more vital and exciting and tension-filled, it serves a purpose, Duke, doesn't it? So started in the twelfth inning, not in the tenth. You know, there's no oh, need to start oh, that- it in the tenth. You know, give two more <laughs> innings, and most games will be resolved in the tenth or the eleventh. If it gets to the twelfth, and they don't want to, and then it'll happen very rarely, and that's enough. You know, that's my view on it. Um, I understand it creates excitement. It's fake. You know, and that's what they want to do. They want to play with the rules of the game in a way that that is absolutely fake. A person who made an out is now on second base. That's that's wrong. Pure and simple. It's, yes, I'm a purist. It's it, wrong. It's ju- it's just wrong. That's it. Okay, we are talking. We are talking with Duke Goldman. He mentioned Saber. That's the Society of American Baseball Research, of which he is one of the shining lights. Baseball is also not only Duke's passion, but his uh, acad- academic pursuits as well. He has written extensively about the sport and the game and the business of baseball. And primarily, he is known for his writings and his research with regard to uh, 
African-Americans in baseball. He is an expert on the Negro Leagues, and he has written extensively on that topic as well. We're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back, and we're going to hear about what are the Red Sox going to do this year? I have a lot to say about that, or at least I want to share. We'll be right back. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. So this is Massachusetts way of saying, we think it's an important program. We think it's important enough to continue for students and their families. And we're going to put the money up front to make sure it continues so that if the federal government does not renew it, Massachusetts will still have universal school meals. 101.5, 1400 and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. What are the things on the menu at Paul and Elizabeth's restaurant that were on the menu when Paul and Elizabeth's opened in 1978? There's fish and chips, which is tempura style fish and chips with an ultra light batter. There's those enormous whole wheat rolls. There's Paul and Elizabeth's fish chowder, so rich and creamy it's kind of hard to believe it's dairy free. There are new things on the menu all the time at Paul and Elizabeth's, side by side with things that we never seem to tire of, like pie. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you get the best local and organic produce, a butcher shop, wine and cheese shop, fresh seafood, and hundreds of bulk herbs, spices, and more. When you shop at River Valley Co-op, you create hundreds of union jobs and generate over $7 million in purchases from local farms and businesses. River Valley Co-op is your food hub, bringing you the best from around the valley and world while supporting your neighbors and local farmers. Shop River Valley Co-op in Northampton and East Hampton today. River Valley. Co-op. Authorization, enrollment, and activation activities are required. Receive all services. Contact institution for details. Two lattes, please. On me. Yeah? My free Casasa cash back checking account surprised me with sweet cash rewards. So thoughtful. Casasa cash back simply appreciates me. It also refunds my ATM withdrawal fees. Huh. My mega bank account just takes money out every month without even asking. Sounds like it's time to move on. Take back the special treatment you deserve with Casasa cash back. Ask for Casasa by name at Franklin First or online at franklinfirst.org. Federally insured by NCU. The last place any of us wants to end up is the auto body shop. But if you ever do, the people to turn to are the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services in Amherst. At Fort Hill, you can leave your concerns at the door. They'll work with your insurance company and return your vehicle back to you in perfect condition. Guaranteed. Look, you love your car. Fort Hill Collision Services will love it too. So for the European touch for your foreign or domestic vehicle, trust the experts at Fort Hill Collision Services, Route 9 in Amherst. Do you love fishing, swimming, or boating, but hate the trash you find? Do you want to help protect clean water and wildlife? Whether you live near the Deerfield River, Millers, Westfield, Chicopee, or Connecticut, your local river needs you. Join the Connecticut River Conservancy and help us protect our rivers. Our rivers belong to all of us, and each of us has a responsibility. Together, we can make a difference. Learn more about what you can do at ctriver.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we continue our talk in baseball with the Duke, Duke Goldman. Northampton-based member of SABRE, the Society of American Baseball Research. Duke, there are going to be dramatic changes, I think, in the rules this year. I want to hear what they are, run those down for us, and then I want to hear your predictions on what's going to happen with the Boston Red Sox and your beloved New York Yankees this year. First, the rules. 
So um, pitchers are now going to have to uh, throw the ball within um, 15 seconds when nobody's on base after they get the ball back after a pitch, and 20 seconds when somebody's on base. Batters have to get in, I believe, within eight seconds before the pitcher pitches. Um, the punishment is a, an extra ball, I believe, or an extra strike. Um, but it's in the minor leagues, it's shown to um, make games about 20 minutes faster. So that's going to be a big difference. The bases are going to be bigger by a few inches, which doesn't sound like a lot, but uh, apparently that in the minors also has in- increased running a good deal. Uh, so they expect that will hopefully make the game a little bit more exciting. By running, you mean steal attempts. Stealing, yes, yes. Stealing, maybe more strategies, you know, small ball strategies. Um, then there's going to be a, a new rule which just came up, which now they say they're restricting how much position players can pitch. They're only going to allow position players to pitch if they're pitching for the team that's ahead by 10 or more runs or the team behind by eight or more runs. Uh, more and more, because teams run through you know, pitchers like crazy, they've been bringing out position players, and position players get racked. And it kind of distorts statistics. Uh, you know, Major League Baseball doesn't seem to care that it distorts statistics to put a, an outmaker on second base to score a run, but they do seem to care about that. So they're they are legislating about that as it, well. Is okay. Is a okay. is a designated well, well, hitter a position player? No. I'm thinking about the Angels. Uh, you know, they have a, a star yeah. Well, they have the Shohei Otani rule, so they 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 bend the rules for players like him. But one other rule that's worth noting is that the the position players have to be in a position now. Oh yes, Second base yes. To, Thank you. Yes. So now the the shift they have to as, get to these shifts. Yeah, they now have to have two players on both sides of the infield, and they have to be within the infield, and that's going to affect lefties the most, apparently, which I'm happy about since I'm a lefty in every way, shape, and form. <laughs> they're gonna they're they're okay. the ones who the suffer re- most from the shift. Yes, the Red Sox. Tell us about the Red Sox. Well, Dan Torres said it best uh, during the break, which is that the Red Sox, the big question is, will they finish in fourth or will they finish in fifth? And, you know, anything's possible. You never know. I mean, um, but it doesn't seem likely they're going to beat out Tampa Bay, which always finds a way to compete, that they're going to beat out Toronto, or that they're sadly going to beat out the Yankees. I don't see that happening. Yankees have problems. They have problems at left field. They have problems at third base. They have problems at shortstop. They have problems at the bull, in the bullpen, but they have strong starting pitchers. They added Carlos Rodon. They have Aaron Judge. That covers a multitude of sins. So they're a strong team. The Red Sox are trying to figure out whether they can turn Adalberto Mondesi, who they just acquired from Kansas City, into an all-star shortstop. And the answer to that is a big fat no, because he's not that good. Um, They just... They don't have very much unless, you know, unless Devers all of a sudden turns into a monster and hits 55 home runs. Uh, And I doubt he's going to do that when he has very little protection in the lineup. Uh, Is Chris Sale, after five or six years of injury, all of a sudden going to be the Chris Sale of old? I doubt it. Um, They're thin. They're just a thin team. That's what I see. I, I just can't see them being much better than a 500 ball club, if that. I would be surprised. Well, we should... We should point out Duke Goldman made a prediction or a uh, reflection like that last season about the Red Sox and turned out to be, I hate to admit it, exactly right. 
I mean, you got you just nailed what the Red Sox were and weren't last year. Uh, any thoughts about the competition? Who is apt to end up in the World Series? Are your beloved Mets going to be there? You know, always hard to say. Uh, uh, one of these magazines that comes out every year to picks, you know, where play, teams are going to finish, picked the Mets for third, and that was when they wrote it a month ago when he, they thought Carlos Correa was going to be on the team. The Mets have not really improved their offense. They lost Jacob deGrom. On the other hand, if Verlander and Scherzer have the years that they have had, even very recently, they could be very formidable. They're a strong team. Will they be in the World Series? Uh, hard to say. Atlanta is great. Um, I, I think the Astros in the American League have to be the favorites. They are just the best team, and we saw that last year. This is Dan. I had a question for you, Duke. What do you think about San Diego Padres? The Padres are also a very, very strong team. Um, one thing with baseball right now, unlike in the NBA and the NFL, there is a lack of parity. You have very strong teams and very weak teams. Mm. Well, that I think well, that's what except we're going to Go ahead, Bill. No, except in the American League East, where you have actually a fair number of teams who are pretty close. Mm. Uh, yeah, it could be. We'll see. Except for the Red Sox. Except for the Red Sox. <laughs> and the Baltimore Orioles. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to have to leave it there. So you those, watch. For those of you who have been listening this morning, thank you for joining us. For those who are listening in the afternoon, stay tuned for more on Talk the Talk. We'll be right back. We're talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball. I guess I called AA because alcohol didn't work anymore. Drinking used to give me a sense of meaning in life. I called AA not knowing what to expect, certainly not cheerfulness, but that's what I got. People had humor. They seemed to be at ease. I hung around. Now I feel much more comfortable with myself and the people around me. Alcoholics Anonymous. It works. Look us up. Online and in-person meetings. For more, call 413-532-2111 or visit westernmassaa.org. For some kids, home isn't a safe place. And in these times, access to trusted adults like teachers and counselors is limited. I'm Kara McElhone, Executive Director of the Children's Advocacy Center of Hampshire County. Our mission is to prevent and end child abuse in our community by providing safety, healing, and justice. The Children's Advocacy Center is open in providing resources to children and caregivers throughout Hampshire County. Please visit us online at cachampshire.org or call 413-570-5988 in the valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. Northampton Radio Group Station. It's 10 o'clock. This is CBS News on the Hour, your home for original reporting. I'm Tom Fody in Washington. At least three students were shot to death Monday night at Michigan State University. Five more were wounded, some of them critically. CBS's Jared Hill. The FBI says it's assisting the investigation as authorities work around the clock to figure out why this happened. We are a community that is knit together by each other. And we will hold each other up. All campus activities, including sporting events, are suspended for the next two days. Police say the suspected gunman took his own life, his motive unclear. There's a search for answers in Brooklyn, New York, too, because a man there drove a U-Haul truck into several people at multiple locations, injuring several, one of whom has died. Sources say 62-year-old Wang Soar has no criminal record in the city, but the NYPD did interact with him in July 2019 in response to an emotionally disturbed 
person call. He was allegedly jumping around in traffic. WCBS-TV's Lisa Rosner, a week after those catastrophic earthquakes in the Middle East. This is a trauma which the world needs to heal. U.N. aid chief Martin Griffiths, the death toll from those quakes now reported around 37,000 in Turkey and Syria. There are fresh developments in two of the investigations of former President Donald Trump. With the latest on the federal case, CBS News correspondent Scott McFarland. CBS News has confirmed reports former Vice President Mike Pence will challenge the subpoena issued to him by special counsel Jack Smith, who is running that growing and sweeping investigation into efforts to overturn the 2020 election. While in Atlanta, where the DA is weighing the possibility of state criminal charges, a Georgia state judge plans to release parts of a special grand jury report about that investigation, but only parts most will remain sealed for now. With a year out with the, before the first primaries and caucuses, ex-South Carolina governor and U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley joins her ex-boss as a formally declared Republican presidential hopeful. For the time being, Trump doesn't really have any first-rank interests in going after Haley. DeSantis is his target. That is political analyst Larry Sabato at the University of Virginia. Well, the government's monthly inflation report is out, and it shows it's slowing a bit in January, but not as much as in December. Here's CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. The largest contributor to prices rising in the month of January was shelter, the government said that shelter accounted for one half of the monthly increase. Which amounted to about a half a percent. Now, over the past year, consumer prices have risen just under six and a half percent. Reacting to all of that after the markets opened about a half an hour ago, the major Wall Street indexes have opened down but have now switched to mixed. The Dow is down about 12 points. The S&P is up about 11. NASDAQ up 67. This is CBS News. You wash your hands, you brush your teeth, but how do you clean your nose? With Navage. Navage uses powered suction to pull saline in one nostril, around the back of the nose, and out the other nostril, flushing out allergens, mucus, and germs. And it's why cleaning your nose, the body's air filter, is the next evolution in daily personal hygiene. Navage helps you breathe better, sleep deeper, and snore less, but the biggest payoff is improved health. At Walmart, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, Target, and online. Navage, N-A-V-A-G-E, clean nose, healthy life. At Staples, you can count on every project being print perfect, guaranteed. I need presentations and brochures printed, and they have to be perfect. Your bounded presentations, brochures with the finest folds, and more will be done right every time. That's our print big promise. Now at Staples, get $10 off your document printing and marketing materials order of $50 or more, plus 20% back by a store bonus. Try Staples and see the difference. Ends 225. Rewards members only. Bonus must be redeemed in store. See staples.com slash stores slash print big for details. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Miller's Falls woman has been charged following an incident on February 2nd that led to her driving her vehicle into a parked car outside of a Hadley residence with a woman and child inside. Christine DiPietro has been charged with two counts of assault with a dangerous weapon, destruction of property, and malicious damage. The Gazette reports witnesses who heard the crash told police DiPietro said she had gone to 133 East Street with the intention of running over her mother-in-law because she, quote, stole my kid. DiPietro allegedly drove her white Mercedes at high speed and crashed into the victim's Honda CRV, pushing it into the home's garage. DiPietro is scheduled for a pretrial hearing on March 17th.
The South Hadley Education Association has solidified their contract agreement with South Hadley Educational Department after lengthy and sometimes contentious negotiations. Even though the contract passed, 46% of members voted against it. The four-year contract for the teachers, department heads, paraprofessionals, and education therapy assistants includes pay increases of 2% in year one, 2% in year two, 2.5% in year three, and 3% in year four. In addition, department heads will also get a reduction in their workload for a one-year trial period. A volunteer group in Amherst met last night to advocate in support of the $98 million elementary school to replace Wildwood and Fort River Elementary Schools. Vote Yes for Our Schools organized late last month and is recruiting volunteers to join them in the lead-up to the anticipated May 2nd Proposition 2.5 debt exclusion vote. The new ballot committee is planning coordinated outreach strategies to get voters in Amherst to the polls and raise awareness about the proposed school. Mostly sunny and breezy today with a high of 44 to 48, gradually increasing clouds tonight, 22 to 28. Mild tomorrow, sun cloud mix, a high of 52 to 56. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. Don't know much about history, don't know much biology, don't know much about a science book, don't know much about the French I took. And I am Buzz Eisenberg. And with us from, from 9,000 miles away in Africa is Bill Newman. Hello, Bill. Hello, Buzz. Thanks for doing this very special new segment you have. The pleasure of that introduction is yours. Okay, I'm really excited about this. Um, for those who don't know, the Collaborative for Educational Services will uh, allow the Executive Director, Todd Gazda, to uh, introduce it before he introduces our very special guest today but to explain what it is. But uh, we have a new segment here called Everyone's a Learner with Todd Gazda. It's going to be a monthly segment, and you're going to be bringing in people who have relevant things to say about our educational system. Hello, Todd. Hi, Buzz. Thanks Hi. for having us here this morning. So first, let's just spend a couple of minutes. What is the Collaborative for Educational Services? So the Collaborative for Educational Services is an educational service agency. Uh, it was um, chartered to serve the 37 member districts in Hampshire and Franklin County. Uh, but we also have a lot of <clears throat> statewide programming, uh, whether it be our mass migrant education programming. We do educational programming for the Department of Youth Services. Um, so we have programs across the state uh, that really look to serve in a holistic manner um, students in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts with a focus on Hampshire and Franklin County. And, and the other focus is that uh, you work with school districts to enhance their ability to deliver the services that they're designed to deliver. We do. I like to see, see us as a problem-solving organization uh, where schools uh, anticipate, you know, have a challenge they need to overcome or something they want to do to expand or change learning and instruction for students in their districts. Uh, and so we are a place where they can come uh, and share their problems uh, or the direction they want to head, head, and we can help troubleshoot and put together either programming or professional development uh, or just support for the children and families and teachers in their districts. And Bill Newman and I are so grateful that you're going to find the time monthly to come here and learn us a little bit. 
I'm looking this. forward to it. You know, there's a lot of, uh, you know, there's a lot of negativity surrounding public education right now. And when you hear the, you know, the narrative nationwide, uh, and even to some extent in the state of Massachusetts, uh, one of the things I'd like to do uh, as I come on each month is kind of shed a light on the good things that are happening in public education uh, to really show people what is happening when you dig down into, uh, you know, the schools and districts and see the amazing things our educators are doing for the students uh, in Massachusetts. It's it's great. I'm I'm looking forward to today and future shows. So, everyone's a learner. Who's our first guest on Everyone's a Learner? So you know, in thinking about that first guest, uh, who did I want to come on? Uh, you know, I thought about Patricia Kinsella. Uh, Patricia is a new superintendent uh, up at Pioneer Valley Regional School District, uh, but she's not new to education. Uh, and so I thought it would be a good thing to bring her on. Uh, maybe talk about the transition into becoming a superintendent. Uh, and uh, really talk about the both uh, the challenges facing rural educators in rural education, as well as the wonderful things uh, that being a rural educator brings. So, Patricia? Good morning. It's so nice to be here. Buzz, it's a pleasure to meet you. Bill, uh, hi there from 9,000 miles away. <laughs> Closer to 10,000, actually, but who, who, at, that, at that point, who cares very much? Well, the greetings <laughs> extend 10,000 miles. Nice to meet you. <laughs> right, you. It feels, you. feels like only 8,000 looking at you, Bill. It does. It seems much closer. <laughs> you know, so uh, rural education, being a superintendent, here's what it looks like. Uh, the house guest you bring when uh, you're invited uh, onto a radio show is uh, eggs from your chicken. So folks at you. home, I'm How giving sweet. Buzz and Todd <laughs> a dozen eggs each from my flock at home. I am so grateful. That's really fantastic. Thank you. Thank you're you. welcome. So, First question for you, Patricia. So you're a new superintendent. Uh, you know, coming into the superintendency, you have a certain, you know, expectations for what the position will bring and what it will look like and what you'll be able to do. Um, how does, how is the reality of being a superintendent kind of met with those uh, expectations? What a good question. I am fortunate because I spent many years in the number two role. I was an assistant superintendent in two different districts. Uh, and I was a senior interim district administrator in a third district. So I collaborated with superintendents very closely. I was in on all of the work of superintendents in multiple districts, districts of different sizes. So I would say I was well prepared. There are no big surprises about the work. What's different is being the person at the top. Mm. Uh, the buck lands at my desk. And so when someone has a concern or a complaint, uh, it falls to me. I'm the one who needs to be responsible because absolutely everything that happens in the district is my responsibility. So um, I would say that's the change being in the public eye so frequently, uh, which I both uh, appreciate the opportunity to interact with our towns, with our unions, with our families. Uh, and you know, sometimes some of the pot shots are hard. Uh, it comes with the territory. I'm a public official. And it looks like Bill has his hand up. I do have my hand up. I'd like to know what are the responsibilities of this principal as opposed to those of a superintendent? What are the responsibilities of a principal versus a superintendent? A principal is the building leader. So they are charged with uh, making sure that students and staff are safe every day, that instruction, that teaching and learning are happening every day. A superintendent is in charge of the entire district. 
So I supervise all the building leaders along with the other district administrators uh, who make things happen. Yeah, that's a good, uh, uh, my question is, uh, you have a lot of towns to deal with as a superintendent, right? And they each have their own town meetings, their own governance forms, and uh, they are going to be making decisions about how to fund your district and the individual schools within the district. So how do you stay in touch with all those different governance entities and uh, respond to their concerns? That's a really important part of the job. I'm fortunate in that Pioneer Valley has a wonderful new director of finance and operations, Jordan Burns, uh, a Northampton resident. Uh, so he is a key player in ensuring that we are in good, frequent communication with our towns. Pioneer Valley has four towns. We've got two hill towns, beautiful Warwick, beautiful Leiden, and then we've got two towns uh, lower down, Bernardston and Northfield. I'm a Northfield resident, so I'm a member of the community that I serve. Quick side note, Warwick will be leaving the district. Uh, Warwick has educated its children for 250 years up in that small town, population 750 or so. Warwick has petitioned the state successfully to leave Pioneer Valley. While we are sad to see them go, we're really happy for them. They'll be starting a, a community school in their lovely building. As of July 1, Pioneer Valley will have three towns remaining. So what we do is we get ourselves out to the towns. Uh, we are out in front of the select boards, the finance committees. Uh, we have gone to meet with the councils on aging in the towns. Um, we, for the budget process, we invite town officials from all of our member towns to the table. And some of our member towns have, have you know, stepped up and, and they've been at many budget meetings over the past four months. So what has been your biggest challenge so far as a superintendent? I came in, so this is my second year in the district. I came in last year as an interim. I would say supporting our community, supporting our families and our staff through the tail end of the pandemic. We're not out of the pandemic, clearly. Uh, I would say the last year as an entire year was the beginning of uh, the end of the, the worst part of it. Um, that was hard. Yeah, that was that was a real challenge. We've had a number of major um, processes taking place simultaneously. Uh, we've had negotiations with both of our unions uh, this year, as well as the departure of Warwick. Uh, that was a significant amount of labor to help make happen. Um, and our little district, you know, uh, has needed some administrative attention. We will be conducting a facilities master plan taking a look at all three of our campuses, what do they need, uh, what's the deferred maintenance that has to be tackled. Um, so I can't point to any single one piece of work that's been the hardest, I would say. This past year and a half, there have been a number of big processes taking place simultaneously. I don't think that's unusual either. I mm -hmm. mean, there's so much coming at you as a superintendent that one of the uh, greatest challenges is keeping all the balls in the air. It really, and you know, making sure nothing gets overlooked. I would agree. So I want to ask both of you, Superintendent Patricia Kinsella and Todd Gazda. So how does the Educational Collaborative work with a school district like Patricia's um, to help them deliver the services they promise? Sure. I, may I, Todd, may you I may. sing the praises of, of the collaborative? <laughs> well, first at the superintendent level, Todd convenes a weekly online meeting of uh, superintendents in Franklin County and some folks from Hampshire County have As now joined us. Franklin, Hampshire, and Hamden. Uh, that is an invaluable resource to superintendents and districts because it is a 
a super efficient way of sharing information, asking questions, getting answers. So I appreciate Todd convenes that, and he's got a light touch as a facilitator, which we all appreciate. So that would be first. Secondly, as a superintendent, I reach out to Todd when I have questions. So I have a trusted, experienced administrator uh, who's neutral, uh, whom I can contact whenever I have some sort of organizational question. CES is the major non-district provider of professional professional development for educators in the this The collaborative area. for educational services. Yes, yes yeah. thank you. Uh, so our teachers take advantage of the many, many offerings. I've worked with collaboratives in the eastern part of the state. Hands down, the collaborative here in Northampton is the most entrepreneurial collaborative uh, with which I have ever engaged. They are out there looking for money, seeking grants, getting grants. So for instance, this year, the collaborative was successful in getting a maybe $375,000 grant to support principals. So two of our principals have a mentor paid for through the collaborative, highly experienced retired principals. Uh, they get hours a month from those folks. My principals go to monthly trainings through the collaborative. Uh, boy, I can't say enough positive things about the services that the collaborative provides to us. See why I brought her on as the first guest? Yeah. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> She's sucking up to you, looking for more services. Bill. I'd like to go back to something you just mentioned, Superintendent, and that is having to deal with COVID. We've read a lot, all of us, about how COVID has hurt the educational attainment levels. I'd like to know what your impression and what your conclusions are as to whether or not COVID, in fact, was detrimental to your students and what, if so, what is needed and what are you doing to remediate that situation? I appreciate the chance to talk about this because it is so important to our family. So when I thought about throwing my hat in the ring for the interim position a year and a half ago, and I was drafting lists of questions, uh, should I get the position? I had seven pages of, of sets of questions for different units within the organization. My first questions always relate to safety, uh, the health and well-being and frank safety of the people who come into our district every day. Especially important, this is the fifth anniversary of the Parkland Exactly. Yeah. Yep. And, and, and health and well-being is a comprehensive idea. So I would include mental health and well-being, emotional health and well-being, the social development of our children. Boy, did COVID take a hit on the social development of many of our young children. Think of our kids who are now in first grade, you know, the preschool year, the kindergarten year. They're at home for a lot of the year. They're not having those day-to-day -day interactions at home. So what are we seeing? And my little district is not unusual in this respect. We're seeing kids who didn't learn some of the basics of social interaction. Sharing. Sharing. Frustration tolerance. Okay, uh, at home, my mom tells me to share. This child just took my block away from me. How do I manage that, right? Frustration tolerance. What are the words I use? Um, what does it mean when the teacher says, everybody come to the rug? Oh, you mean in school there's an adult who tells me things I have to do and I'm expected to follow that reasonable directive? Come, what does coming to the rug mean? What does getting in line mean? oh, I have to shift my attention when this caring adult tells me I have to shift my attention. Those are not inconsequential skills. I would imagine empathy took a hit as well. 
empathy took a hit. And kids are resilient, mm. right? So kids are resilient. Kids at all ages, all of Not them. all ages. The ones in Congress <laughs> who haven't learned these lessons. Well, everyone's a learner, <laughs> yeah. right? We're going to keep saying yes. that. Well done. Uh, you know, screen time. The acculturation to screens, the number of hours a day on screens. Uh, I think it's a good time to take a break. It's talking about something that all of us are sensitive to, uh, concepts like empathy and sharing. And it's easier when you learn them when you're really little as opposed to a little bit bigger. But I, everyone's a learner is a wonderful mantra to keep in mind. I'll try to keep that in mind. Uh, we're going to take a break. I'm going to rejoice in having my dozen eggs. Uh, grown by Patricia. We'll be right back after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Do you know what's happening this Friday at 9 a.m.? Is this week's Shop Friday local burgers and fries? Correct! They go on sale this Friday at 9 a.m. Full value gift certificates and you save 30%. Local burgers and fries, spiked milkshakes and more. On the corner in downtown Northampton and on the main drag in Keene. Get ready to save 30% beginning Friday at 9 a.m. The Shop 30 store at whmp.com. I never voyaged so far in all my life. You'll see men you never heard of before, whose names you don't know, going long way down through the meadows with long ducking guns and watertight boots, wading through the meadow grass, looking at ducks, teal, blue wing, green wing, sheldrakes, ospreys, and many other wild and noble sights before night, such as they who sit in parlors never dream of. You shall see rude and sturdy, experienced and wise men, keeping their castles or teaming up their summer's wood, chopping alone in the woods, men fuller of talk and rare adventure in the sun and the wind and chestnut is of meat, who are not only out in 1775 and 1812, but have been out every day of their lives. Greater men than Homer or Chaucer or Shakespeare, only they never got the time to say so. They never took to the way of writing. Look at their fields and imagine what they might write if ever they should put pen to paper. This Thoreau reading is brought to you by the Franklin Land Trust. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back with our segment, Everyone's a Learner, with Tom Gaz Todd Gazda of the Educational Collaborative with Superintendent Patricia Kinsella of the Pioneer Valley Regional School District. Patricia, I'd like to shift our uh, topic a little bit now. Uh, I, what I would like to focus on right now is to talk about some of the wonder uh, of being a rural educator, uh, of educating students out here in Western Mass. You have experience both in Eastern Mass uh, as well as this area. Um, what makes it beautiful? What makes it joyful for our students 
I just love living out here and working out here. When I'm talking with students, as I did yesterday, I met with all of the eighth graders at Pioneer to talk about what they love about school. How is our school helping them? How is our school meeting their needs? How is school helping them develop? And then the second part of the conversation was about what could we be doing even better? And when we talked about what we could be doing even better, kids brought up uh, their desire for more hands-on opportunities. And I was talking with some of them about chickens, <laughs> you know, talking with kids about how many of you have farm animals at home? How many of you hunt? How many of you have uh, eaten food, whether it's vegetables or some kind of animal protein that you have helped produce? I just love that our students, many of them, have family relationships to the land, to agriculture, to the environment, whether it's through logging, whether through it's uh, working on farms, owning farms, uh, construction. I love that part of, um, of being out here. I love the intergenerational connections with school. I cannot enumerate the number of times I have met someone who says, oh, my cousin works in the district and uh, my whole family went to the district and my grandfather graduated in X year. Everybody knows everybody. One has to be on one's best behavior at all times because <laughs> there is no, you know, I go to the farmer's co-op and I see people who know me. The manager is forever teasing me about something he's read in the paper about the district. I just love how connected people are. And I think that's probably our greatest strength as a school district. It would be hard for a student to fall through the cracks with us because everybody knows everybody and people care so much about our kids, about our staff, about the well-being of our community. That is a comfort to me, knowing that when there's a student who might need a little TLC, it is not hard to find someone in the district who knows that family and can help make sure the TLC is provided. I love that. It takes a village. Wait a minute. We are a village. That's right. right? That's yeah. right. You know, it's interesting. I mean, I am the product of rural education. I grew up in Middlefield, which is the far west town of Hampshire County, 400 people. Uh, and we had horses, cows, pigs, chickens. I didn't know this, uh -huh. Todd. I know. Uh, so, you know, I am a country boy at heart, uh, and it's. Ne I think there's a certain amount of it that just, you know, gets into your person and really helps shape who you are. Um, and you're right. You know, everybody knows everything that's going on, uh, and that can be challenging at times, but uh, that support system that can be there is really powerful for these students. And again, I think it's part of our strength. So, for instance, we are talking, talking about reopening our wood shop at Pioneer at the Middle Senior High School, uh, and we have folks coming out of the woodwork to help clean the wood shop out, uh, to help refurbish the workbenches. Uh, we're talking about increasing the amount of time kids have outside of school. We have a wonderful former educator, John Lapore, who is a restoration ecologist after working at Pioneer for decades. He went to the Conway School and got advanced education uh, as an ecologist. And he's taking a look at our three campuses and figuring out how and where can we increase access to the environment for our students. We're looking at hiring an environmental educator. Uh, all of this is trying to meet the needs of our community and get our kids outside more. I am wondering, We uh, Bill had Max Page on, 
a couple of weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about, well, uh, you, I'm getting a quizzical look. Yeah, president but, of the MTA. Oh, right. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Right, and we were talking about MCAS as a graduation requirement and the change in that regard. Do you have any thoughts about that, Patricia? Well, oh, you just locked up a big one for Patricia, okay. something she's well, definitely passionate about. Assessment is an area of professional interest to me. I have taught in the Boston Public Schools courses for educators for which they receive graduate credit on assessment. I have helped hundreds of educators and administrators, librarians, uh, improve their assessment skills in literacy when I was curriculum coordinator for literacy in the Brookline Public Schools. I have an intense interest uh, and some expertise. I was on the teams that brought in the park assessment when that was first rolled out before NextGen MCAS, and I was the senior administrator who pre-digested and presented information on MCAS, AP, and other standardized assessments for multiple school committees. So, And what do you think about MCAS as a graduation and requirement? And I think uh, it is not the most effective graduation requirement we could come up with. The you know, the, the social science research is pretty clear. Mass standardized testing does not provide us with the type of uh, finely detailed information we need quickly to teach our students what they need to learn the next day. There is overwhelming evidence that students of color, students from lower income homes, and students with disabilities are disproportionately negatively impacted uh, by standardized assessments. I can think of many more graduation requirements I'd like to see implemented. That's why our district is in conversation with MCIEA, the Mass Consortium on Innovative Educational Assessment. Todd was an original member of MCIEA when it first started. When I was superintendent in Ludlow, yeah. So we could be doing much better, uh, and I'll be interested to see what Governor Healy does um, about MCAS. We all will. Um, it has been so great to meet you, Patricia. Oh, thanks for having me on. This has been wonderful. Thanks, yeah, Todd. Oh, thank you. Todd, the segment is called Everyone's a Learner. Todd Gazda of the Educational Collaborative is going to come on monthly and bring fine people like Superintendent Patricia Kinsella of the Pioneer Valley Regional School District. Thank you both for joining us. It was my pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks for thank having you. us, Buzz. Stay and with Bill. us. <laughs> and Bye, Bill. Bill. And Bill, Bill 11,000 miles Bill, away. Bill, here's the promise of a dozen <laughs> eggs. <laughs> <laughs> right, Patricia will not grow I'm, them. I'm coming back to <laughs> the eggs. I'm coming back to the <laughs> Or I could bring some pork chops. <laughs> okay, we're going to be right back. We're talking Shakespeare on Playbill with Jackie Walsh right after these messages. Stay with us. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book Don't know much about the French I took You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Miller's Falls woman has been charged following an incident on February 2nd that led to her driving her vehicle into a parked car outside of a Hadley residence with a woman and child inside. Christine DiPietro has been charged with two counts of assault with a dangerous weapon, destruction of property, and malicious damage. The Gazette reports witnesses who heard the crash told police DiPietro said she had gone to 133 East Street with the intention of running over her mother-in-law because she, quote, stole my kid. DiPietro allegedly drove her white Mercedes at high speed and crashed into the victim's Honda CRV, pushing it into the home's garage. DiPietro is scheduled for a pretrial hearing on March 17th. 
The South Hadley Education Association has solidified their contract agreement with South Hadley Educational Department after lengthy and sometimes contentious negotiations. Even though the contract passed, 46% of members voted against it. The four-year contract for the teachers, department heads, paraprofessionals, and education therapy assistants includes pay increases of 2% in year one, 2% in year two, 2.5% in year three, and 3% in year four. In addition, department heads will also get a reduction in their workload for a one-year trial period. A volunteer group in Amherst met last night to advocate in support of the $98 million elementary school to replace Wildwood and Fort River elementary schools. Vote Yes for Our Schools organized late last month and is recruiting volunteers to join them in the lead-up to the anticipated May 2nd Proposition 2.5 debt exclusion vote. The new ballot committee is planning coordinated outreach strategies to get voters in Amherst to the polls and raise awareness about the proposed school. Mostly sunny and breezy today with a high of 44 to 48, gradually increasing clouds tonight, 22 to 28. Mild tomorrow, sun cloud mix, a high of 52 to 56. 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. To play this game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan, that's probably a good idea, too. Hit the ice all season long right here on the UMass Sports Network. 101.5, 1400-1240-WHMP. It was one of those big historic houses in Conway, built in the 1800s, a real beauty, though a bit of a challenge to insure. Steve bought it for about $700,000. The insurance company figured the replacement cost to be about $5 million, a bit of a gap there. But there's a specialty insurance company we work with from time to time at Whalen Insurance, and soon enough, we were able to get the house insured. When a home buyer has a tough situation with insurance, like Steve did with the house in Conway, their real estate lawyer usually sends them to us, Whalen Insurance. We'd like to insure your house, too, even if it isn't as challenging. We'll get you every discount available, and more importantly, if you ever need help or have a claim, you won't be calling a 1-800 number and entering your policy on the dial pad because at Whalen Insurance, we answer the phone. Whalen Insurance. Local people, local service, local insurance. In partnership with Mafre Insurance. Call for a quote. 586-1000. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And we are back. This is Playbill with Jackie Walsh talking about theater. Theater. So what's new in theater? Well, I wanted to start out with tipping my hat to set designers. This weekend I went to the Majestic in West Springfield and I saw Native Gardens. And the set, you know, it's a small theater. It's like, despite the name, Majestic Theater, it's kind of a black box theater. But... The set was just magnificent. It was two Georgetown, D.C. houses, one brick, one wooden, next to each other, like two or three stories with roofs. I mean, they were so 
com such complex uh, buildings. I mean, it was like a third of a house, each of them, that they had constructed with an oak tree that looked real. And uh, just little touches like the wealthy, uh, sort of snooty family had iron garden furniture, and the other family had metal garbage cans. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and beautiful flowers. It was great, and I feel like I never really talk about set designers. So that set designer is Greg Trocklil. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his name, but what a job he did. He's been doing it for like 26 years there. Wow, way to go, Greg. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so we have, as far as performances, Clue, based on the classic board game at Exit 17 in Ludlow, February 17th through the 26th. What's interesting to me about this show is the understudies perform this Friday. Um, so with COVID, a lot of theater groups now have understudies just in case the leads get sick. And they rehearse as much as the leads, and yet usually they don't end up on stage at all. So I think it's exciting that they get to do a full show. Um, Silverthorne is doing a reading of a new play by... Northampton playwright Bettle Arnold. It's called The Building. That will be at the Divine Theater in Holyoke, February 16th, which is Thursday. It's about a grandmother trying to help her granddaughter who's dating a drug dealer. Valley Voice's Story Slam with the theme of Kiss and Tell will be February 16th, Thursday at Hawks and Reed in Greenfield. Arash will be at UMass February 24th through March 4th. It's a Persian story about someone who carries out a heroic, a heroic act that changes the country's future. It's directed by Iranian director Benin Alabashi, and he has agreed to come here in a couple weeks. Oh, great! Um, and then Shakespeare and Company in the off season is do something, doing something interesting. I think it's new. It's a lecture series hosted by a Shakespearean scholar, Anne Berman, who will speak to us next week. She's coming in next week. The first one is this Saturday at 10.30 at the Elaine Bernstein Theater in Lenox. Focuses on Romeo and Juliet, Juliet and she sort of um, approaches it with a different um, theme, which is how costume design influences audience response. Wow. Mm -hmm. March 4th, Midsummer Night's Dream, she'll be talking about. And that play is actually coming to Shakespeare and Company in August and September March 18th, my favorite, Shakespeare and Jealousy. Ooh. And then April 1st, she's doing Henry VI. So there's uh, not a ton of shows going on, but sort of interesting things like that. Well, like, this is Valentine's Day, and I know only one Twelfth Night quote, and that is, if music be the food of love, play on. Ooh, Ooh. I love that. And that brings us to our guest today, who is Julian Finlay. He's actually He actually trained and performed at Shakespeare and Company and over six seasons. He's performed in more than 40 plays. He was theater director at Stonely Burnham, an all-girls prep school, so I'm, I'm going to ask him about Shakespeare, doing it with all women. It used to be all men. And now he is artistic director and founder of Shakespeare Stage and just auditioned people for Twelfth Night, which will be going up in June at the Academy of Music. So, Julian, hello. Hello. How are you guys doing? How did I do? How did if music be the food of Oh, yeah, love. you nailed it. Yeah, All right. I'm going to cast you right now. <laughs> I'll have to grow a beard. <laughs> yeah. So how were your auditions last week for 12? Yeah, they were, they, were, they were fantastic. A lot of great, great actors came out. A lot of people 
there were some people from Boston and Connecticut. And mm-hmm. so it was like, wow, mm-hmm. a lot of people coming up to and, be part of this. And they do a monologue at the audition. So are there like favorite monologues that Shakespearean actors use at auditions or is it all over the place? Um, usually it's, I mean, there are some like more famous ones that people do. But to then be you or not know, to be? Right. And mostly in an audition, you don't really want to do that because it's been done so many times before exactly. and you have to live up to these expectations of the best to be or not to be monologue. You'd have to do um, it as a giraffe or something really weird. <laughs> as a giraffe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or a cow. Um, yeah. Usually I like seeing kind of unique or rarer monologues performed in auditions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm a little unique in my audition process. I've I've gone to countless auditions where I walk on stage, do my monologue, and then walk out the room. And you don't know whether or not, you know, like you did well or you did, you know, they mm-hmm. call you back or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But I like involving myself with the actors. So they'll give me their monologue first, and then I'll direct them, okay, let me give you a couple notes. Now do that monologue again. Right, right, right. And then I'll have them maybe read some lines, and I'll read with them. Yes. You know, so I'll like encourage their energy. Because well, I know what, an, audition, an audition room is very, it's a very weird thing. As an, <laughs> as an artistic director and a director, Julian Findlay, what are you looking for when they do their monologues? Um, well, I can, I can almost tell the first five seconds if I can work with an actor. Um, it's, this, it's a certain aura or an energy or a presence, like an immediacy. And usually I look for the ability for the actor to give eye contact. I think that's a huge thing. Um, Yeah, it has a lot to do with energy. I heard someone said, and probably it's false, but that the most confident person usually gets the role. Is confidence a big part of it? Um, I'm sure confidence helps, yeah, walking into the room and knowing what you're doing, knowing your lines. Um, Yeah, that, that certainly goes a long way. But there are some underlying nuances that, People who are confident might, you know, m- might be a worse actor than the the humble, shy kid in the back. Yep. You know, what do you, um, is it just a hopeless thing to pursue if you haven't done theater before? It seems to me to audition and to read Shakespeare is very hard because it's impenetrable, some of it. If you only understand a third of it, how do you act that piece? Right. It is, it is a different language. Um, and what I struggle with is some actors are there. They say the, the Shakespeare lines in a way that is totally separate from themselves. Uh-huh. And I encourage a more uh, like a, to be or not to be. That is the question, whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against the sea of troubles and by opposing end them. And that to me, is not as like the Lawrence Olivia, Olivier, I am doing Shakespeare. No, we're in a contemporary, we're in a contemporary world right now. We're in 2023. You know, people don't want to see Shakespeare from the 1600s. They want to see Shakespeare where they can, you know, listen to, listen to Queen or something, you know, listen to the 80s, but it's Shakespeare. Right. Um, Right. So I, go ahead, I'm sorry. No, no, no. After you. I have, I have a question, if I don't mind, Jackie. Go for it. Stan, see, we're talking to an audience who maybe has a, a couple uh, plans for the weekend. Why should they go and, and listen to Shakespeare? You know, that make, make the case for why we need Shakespeare right now. Sure. I think it's, 
it's the universal language. Shakespeare was the original storyteller. So all these stories that we are creating on Netflix and HBO and Amazon and wherever, YouTube, TikTok, that's all that's all Shakespeare. You know, all the hip hop that you see. I'm a hip hop artist as well. Um, you can stream me on Spotify, Jules Finley. Uh, I think a lot of my hip hop and my music has been influenced by Shakespeare. Mm. And I think people would want to see, like, I'm setting my show in the 80s. You know, it's going to be at, like, Studio 54 kind of vibe. Mm. So it's a party, like 12th Glitter. night's a party. I think, I think people would want to come and, and party with us. <laughs> mm. um, so today is Valentine's Day. So can you tell us anything about your feelings about Romeo and Juliet? In about uh, two minutes. I, yeah. Before yeah, we take okay. a break. Well, all right, but soft, what light through yonder window breaks? It is the east, and Juliet is the sun. Arise, fair sun, and kill the envious moon, who is already sick and pale with grief that thou her maid art far more fair than she. Be not her maid, since she is envious. Her vestal livery is but sick and green, and none but fools do wear it. Cast it off. It is my lady, oh, it is my love, oh, that she knew she were. She speaks, yet she says nothing. What of that? Her eye discourses. I will answer it. I am too bold. Tis not to me she speaks. Two of the fair stars and all the heavens having some business to entreat her eyes to twinkle in their spheres till they return. Well, you know, you but know, your Shakespeare, there, Julian. In her head, the brightness of her cheek would shame those stars as daylight doth a lamp. Her eyes in heaven would through the airy region stream so bright that birds would sing and think it were not night. So what is what does the audience take away from that? that oh, that I were a glove upon that hand that I might touch that cheek. It's love. It's it's innocent love. It's. You know, it's the love that you had when you were 15 that you thought you'd never lose. Right, right, that, right. That's, yeah. yeah. So how is Mr. Shakespeare doing in the United States and elsewhere? In one minute. Oh, yeah. In one minute? <laughs> I think, I mean, Shakespeare's always going to be around. I think I think COVID hurt a lot of theater, so that's that's the toughest thing. But I think it'll make a resurgence right about now because people – are so desperate to get back into a, a community. And Shakespeare really um, breeds community, I feel, for sure. That's a great place to leave it when we take a break. We're going to be <laughs> right back. This is Playbill with Jackie Walsh. We're talking to artistic director and founder, Julian Findley, and we're talking about Twelfth Night, which he's just casted and will be playing at the Art Academy of Music in June. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. If only there were an indoor, climate-controlled farmer's market every day of the year. Oh, but there is. At State Street Fruit Store, Deli Wines and Spirits, farmers are bringing in their best from the field, orchards, and greenhouses every day. The best of the crop from wherever the crop is best, starting with fiddleheads and asparagus, all the way through berry season, 
corn and into the root veggies and hothouse stuff to get you through a New England winter. Plus, you can grab a bottle of Burgundy or bourbon. And since it's open every day of the year, it's like a farmer's market every day of the year. But no rain, no snow, no heat wave, and they open at 6.30 a.m. every day of the year. Those are farmer's hours. Since the market is inside the building, there's plenty of room to park in the lot. State Street Fruit Store Deli Wines and Spirits on the corner of State and Center in downtown Northampton. It's like an indoor farmer's market every day of the year. Picture perfect days here in the Valley, and there's not a better place to celebrate those perfect days than at the Bridgeside Grill in Sunderland. The Bridgeside Grill has undergone a stunning transformation and expansion, and now it's time to revisit one of your favorite spots in the Valley. Check out the new and expanded bar area and dine by the warm and cozy fire. The Bridgeside Grill is open Tuesday through Thursday starting at noon, Friday and Saturday starting at 8, and don't forget Sunday brunch from 8 to 2. The Bridgeside Grill, right in the heart of downtown Sunderland. Need a ride to the doctor? Tech support? Pictures hung? Looking to connect with others in the community? At Northampton Neighbors, our goal is to help seniors live independent, fulfilling lives by providing connection and support along the way. We are free of charge and offer a range of social and volunteer opportunities, as well as services for members 55 and older in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. Membership in Northampton Neighbors is about more than aging in place. It's about engaging in place. This place, the city of Northampton. We welcome one and all to join, volunteer, or donate to Northampton Neighbors. Together, we can create the community we all want to live in, now and in the future. Find us at NorthamptonNeighbors.org or by calling 413-341-0160. Thank you. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. And this is Buzz Eisenberg. We are talking with uh, Jackie Walsh. It is Playbill, and her guest is Julian Findlay, who is the founder and the artistic director of Shakespeare Stage. And Bill, from the other side of the planet, is joining us virtually. Bill, you had a question for Julian. I do have a question. Julian, what do you say to... <laughs> it's a big, it's a big planet, and we lost you, Bill. <laughs> I will say a lot to that. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. No, I know indeed. what he. I think, I think Bill was going to ask you about the language of Shakespeare and, and and why it's still relevant. I believe that that's what he was going to ask you. Sure. Yeah. Um. I mean, I training at Shakespeare and Company for six years, we had to do like a lot of uh, dictionary work, and so dictionary was work was taking every word that we weren't necessarily comfortable, actually every word, period, and we would find a new definition for it. So that would allow, I know that's a lot of, that's a lot of work, that's a lot of training, that's a lot of time, but for the audience members, in the audience just seeing the play with these actors who hopefully got that training before they're getting on stage will make it so much more relatable and remember how I talked about like uh, the Lawrence Olivier voice, like mm -hmm. I'm going to be doing Shakespeare in a certain way. So you get, but it's, it's content. It's connecting it now, I think to a more contemporary world, but it's so very emotional. It's mm -hmm. so very emotional. And that's what I think will get anyone who hasn't even seen a Shakespearean play. You will get the emotion of it. 
Mm-hmm. So, Julian, why? Because he lives in such high emotions. Yes. So, why Twelfth Night? Why did you settle on doing that play this year in June at the Academy of Music? You know, I was like, should we do? Should we do a drama? Should we do Hamlet? The world is too sad right now. <laughs> so, I want, I want to do Twelfth Night because Twelfth Night is my probably my favorite comedy of the whole canon. Um, and it's just such a fun romp. It's like a day. It's like a party. It's just a night of revels, you know, and who wouldn't want to revel at the Academy of Music? Such really? a beautiful place. And so you are, this is a new group, Shakespeare's Stage. And uh, well, yeah, go ahead. We've been, a, we, we were around, around 2016, we started, uh-huh. um, and then COVID really shut us down. Right, for right, right. I was you said you mentioned the majestic. I was actually doing the pitch. It was an original play at the Majestic Theater, and then we were going to be going to Broadway, but then COVID shelved all of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and now and now we're turning that play, the pitch, into a feature length film. Wow. Um, so... And Stan Freeman is the writer and the director ah, and the producer of that. I know yeah. Stan. He used to work at the Union News where I work. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, not so to put we... you on the spot, but what are your no. three favorite Shakespeare plays? Um, my three favorite Shakespeare plays, Twelfth Night, The Tempest, and, I don't know, Macbeth or Hamlet. Those tragedies. Yeah. yeah. I bet yeah. they'd be I directed... on a... A lot I've directed of people. Macbeth a few times as nice. well. Nice. Yeah. Do you think so? You directed at an all-girls school, Stonely Burnham in um, in Greenfield, and uh, do you think Shakespeare ever anticipated that that would be done, given that he was his plays were I of think course. always yeah, done course. by all men? I think he would have been thrilled that that came full circle because it was all. It was all men during his time because that was the law, you know, and to have all women cast do it, that's an amazing progression. So, yeah, I think he would have been just thrilled to have that. I mean, he wrote some of the strongest women in literary history. So, you know, you got to acknowledge the women, you know. Yeah. uh, uh, Tina Packer wrote Women of Will. So that's all the women in Shakespeare, the founder of Shakespeare and Company, down oh, in right, the yeah. And uh, she wrote Women of Will, and it's such a great, you know, strong uh-huh. telling of what women can do. And did your students really just absolutely love playing any particular traditionally male roles in Shakespeare? Oh, yeah, they just loved it. And stage combat and all that, they just had so much fun doing that. Very yeah. Cool. And the, and uh, I just wanted to talk about Shakespeare and like contemporary hip hop for a second, because as I mentioned, I was a hip hop artist. I met my um, producer in Springfield, Avery on the beat. He's 22 years old. He's already gotten platinum. He has a number one billboard plaque. This kid is like making it. So for me to have lost my theater career during COVID and then finding a new path made theater and hip hop like together wow. it combined it for me wow. so it's a new it's a new world that we're wow. living in so how <laughs> and I'm not, now i now i'm making music for like i just filmed the stephen king movie in uh maine and i wrote a, an original song for that wow. so it's like an amazing kind of connection how this has all happened wow so a lot of your music is connected to shakespeare or, or some of it yeah i think 
I think my emotionality and my rhythm mm -hmm. is able to be connected to Shakespeare in a lot of ways, for sure. Yeah. Nice. So I we're talked talk to Deborah Anthony about maybe doing uh, a hip hop show at the Academy of Music, so that might be coming up sometime. <laughs> nice. And just maybe in, the in, in a minute, in the minute that we have left, a minute and a half that we yeah. have left, is there a connection between hip hop and Shakespeare? And in my mind, forgive me, they seem like very different mediums. Yeah, uh, different, but totally, yeah, totally similar. I mean. Some of the I talk to a lot of hip hop artists and they're like, man, I fell in love with Shakespeare in, you know, elementary school. You know, it's this it's the words, it's the alliteration, it's the storytelling that is, is so similar. Like like Tupac, you listen to Tupac, he's got beautiful imagery, you know, Shakespeare has beautiful imagery. It's it's not all like drugs and guns and, you know, all that. It's actually quite quite a profound genre of music. That right. is really it's the, interesting. It's the rhythm. It's the rhythm of the iambic pentameter. It's the heartbeat. So it's ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum ba bum. That's iambic pentameter. Well, for it's me, it's the I do moronic pentameter. But um, <laughs> but I'm wondering. If, I appreciate that. In 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 the next half minute, if Shakespeare if Shakespeare was alive, do you think he he would be a hip hop writer? Oh, he would totally be into hip hop. Oh yeah, for sure, he would be into hip hop. I mean, he wrote like. So there's verse and prose, and some verse rhymes, sometimes it doesn't. But there are a lot of couplets that Shakespeare uses, and those are rhyming. Like a lot of his sonnets were rhyming. So, yeah, he was really That's into so the great. rhyme. Okay. Yeah. Well, it has been so nice to talk to you. Jackie, thank you for introducing us to Julian Finley. Uh, it's Twelfth Night being prepared for the Academy of Music June performance. His uh, company is Shakespeare Stage. You can follow him on Instagram. Bill Newman. So, yeah, follow like me on Instagram. Jules Finley, twenty-one. <laughs> there we go, Excellent. Bill. For listeners, listen. For listeners listening, as it approaches eleven o'clock, Buzz and I and Dan want to thank you for listening and understanding that it is not enough to talk the talk. And for those listening in the afternoon, we want you to know that coming up after the break is a really interesting interview with the leading expert and activist on reparations, Robin Simmons who is the founder and executive director of First Repair, the organization responsible for the reparation efforts across the United States. She will be in Amherst soon. We thank you all for being with us. Pets and people, they belong together. They help us feel calm and loved with every tail wag, kiss, and snuggle. Dakin Humane Society believes in this bond, and your support keeps people and pets together. You provide resources so animals with medical issues can get the care they need to find homes. Our pet food aid program lets people facing tough times feed and keep their pets because you care. Dakin's many programs and services help companion animals and the people who love them. To make a gift, visit DakinHumane.org. Live and local news and talk for Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton. WHMQ Greenfield. A Northampton Radio Group Station.